In theory, there's a debt ceiling deal between President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But it's not law yet, and with days until the theoretical deadline, Congress has a lot of work to do. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, what can we expect? Well, we'll see the first test for this bill today as the House Rules Committee meets to prepare it for floor action. And usually this is a perfunctory step, but this has been closely watched because um, one of the one of the hard things about this is to sell some of the flanks of both sides of the party. And in this case, there's three very conservative members who they have to sell this bill to and get it through that panel to get it to the floor. So test vote today there. And then tomorrow is supposed to be the key vote in the House where all the members will have a chance to weigh in. Then the tricky part comes because you also have to get this bill through the Senate. And as anyone who's watched the Senate knows, that can take a long time, depending on what any one member decides to do. So the the big date here, thanks to Janet Yellen's revision last week, is June 5. That's when she says her ability to manage things is going to become more difficult. So I think we'll see a lot between now and June 5 to try to get this thing past both chambers onto the president's desk and into law. Yeah, really interesting. And what do we know about the provisions? I mean, the one thing is there is less money for the IRS than had been envisioned under the infrastructure bill. Right. So Democrats in their reconciliation law in 2022, which some people call the Inflation Reduction Act, a name that was kind of uh, questionable at the time. Um, But now there's $80 billion in that law. Republicans wanted to claw most of it away. The deal that was reached between the White House and House Republicans would claw about $20 billion of that back over the next two years and reallocate it to other things. You won't see that necessarily in the bill, but it's part of the trade-offs that have been made here under spending. So what the White House has been saying is, yes, we'll take $10 billion this year, $10 billion next year as we're doing appropriations. But, um, you know, there's still going to be a lot of money left if we need to come back and go to Congress in a few years to get more to replenish what's being taken away. That might be an option. So um, but the idea here is that funding, which would be used for staff and for enforcement and for even, you know, modernization efforts at the IRS, some of that money will be clawed back as part of this deal. And what else would be clawed back and what else would continue? I mean, how much do we know about the details of what they agreed to? We know a good amount. There's a 99-page bill, and then there's a bunch of documents that both parties um, have released in the day since the deal was reached. So we know that there are spending caps put in for the next two years, security and non-security caps that will restrain the growth in spending. Um, Some will say it freezes it and limits it to 1% into next year. Um, It also suspends the debt limit through January 1, 2025, which means that for the rest of this term of President Joe Biden and this Congress, the debt limit will be taken care of. It'll be up to the next Congress probably to come in and weigh this again. Um, There are also some changes to the National Environmental Policy Act, um, not as broad as the permitting reform that some Republicans wanted, but some changes that both sides have said could make a difference. Um, And then there's um, some clawing back of COVID funds that were put out there in the last few years, not spent, and they're going to claw those back and and use that as savings. So those are some of the big things that are there in addition to like the work requirements on SNAP that were controversial and something where the president is going to have to shore that up with his side of the aisle. In some ways, then, this is a really big test of the party's leadership because There's more centralism, for lack of a better word, in this than extreme left or extreme right. None of that, neither one of them got what they wanted. And so the question is, 
can it sail at this point? That is the big question. And, you know, Joe Biden called it a compromise over the weekend. That means both sides don't get what they want. I think the Republicans will say they got more out of the president than he ever wanted, given that his starting position was I'm not going to negotiate over raising or suspending the debt limit. So I think there's a lot of rhetoric that can be used to sell this to the two parties. I don't think anyone wanted to come out and say that they were too happy because, you know, they want to make it seem like um, it, it was a fair deal for both sides so that neither side pulls away some of their support. Um, so there's there's things in here that both parties will like and things that both parties won't like. We're speaking with Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And the House otherwise was not going to be in town this week, correct? But now they will temporarily? Yeah, they're coming in for two days. They'll do some financial services bills today while they wait for that Rules Committee meeting, get it out onto the floor, and then have their vote on Wednesday. Wednesday became the date because of the 72-hour rule. They wanted to have the text available for 72 hours before members were asked to vote on it. So that's why Wednesday was the day. And then presuming that's done, the House will go away and leave it to the Senate. This was supposed to be a weekend session for the Senate. They had last week off for their Memorial Day break. So they're going to do a judge vote tonight and then I think start plotting a course on this bill and how soon they can move it. All right. And then the Senate had other issues it was going to do this week. And will it still get to them, do you think? Yeah, it's unclear on the floor, but in the committees, you know, they're going to fire up again. And there's some some hearings there. They were going to look at the, I think, a deputy Veterans Affairs secretary, and they're going to look at other nominations and issues there. So the committees will get up and running. Um, but there's still a lot before the Senate, particularly on that nomination side. And one of the things we'll be watching as senators get back into town is what's next on the Julie Sue nomination for the Labor Department, because they're without a full-time secretary that is, in some ways, preventing them from doing rulemaking. So um, they're there's un- there's questionable Democratic support on that one. And that's the thing. You know, there's only f- you know, 51 Democrats. They can only afford to lose a couple before that nomination is in trouble. And we'll be looking to see what that support looks like um, and if that's one that can move forward. Yes, because the support for that one is kind of not so widespread. I mean, there's even some Democrats, I think, that are unhappy or uneasy with Ms. Sue. Yeah, that's correct. And I think it's the questions around, are there enough Democrats or do Democrats have enough concerns that this nomination may not make it all the way? We've seen some judicial nominees pull back in recent weeks and withdraw their nominations. So that'll be a question around this one as well. Will there be enough to get it over the line? And what about modernizing Homeland Security's legacy IT? That's kind of close to home for our listeners That's coming up in the Senate. Yep, that's going to be a committee hearing in the Homeland Security Committee. Um, They often take a look at these things. They they look at more than just Homeland Security, but that is one of the parts of their remit. So we'll see a hearing this week on that. Um, Might be interesting to see what they're coming up with there. Um, Often they take bipartisan approaches to things in that committee. So um, we'll see if that's something that can be done. And obviously they'll be weighing that now with budget pressures as we, we will have this agreement going forward on what spending might look like for the next couple of years. Right. If they take away money from the IRS, it's not going to go to Homeland Security for its modernizing. Right. That that could. Those are the trade-offs that you have to make under spending caps, right? So, right. pretty much. All right. So the Senate is in town. The House is in town for a couple of days. So everything really now is basically focused on that debt ceiling deal. Absolutely. And that will break loose. And I'm sure we'll talk in coming weeks about spending bills and defense authorization and all the things that this deal could help move forward that had sort of been stalled for the last couple of weeks as they didn't have this path forward. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.